Drive Time 91.3 Always on the cutting edge First at the Cape Drive Time 0829-913-913 is uh, the WhatsApp line What do you think? In fact, what do you think of the following story? An analysis of those who donated blood shows that certain population groups have built up a higher degree of immunity to COVID-19 than other population groups. The report, and this was done in the Western Cape, shows that almost 70% of people identified as black had developed antibodies to COVID-19. We now chat to Director of Research Development in the Department of Medical Biosciences at UWC, Professor Bertram Fielding. Professor, welcome. Good afternoon, Shafiq, and good afternoon to the listeners. This is an interesting result, uh, experimental result, isn't it? Um, What do we actually make of it other than the data, if you know what I'm trying to say? Shafiq, you know, this is not totally unexpected. Um, I think we've, we've known all along that if you look at different areas, different population groups, you would find um, different levels of exposure to this virus and a different level of seroconversion, which means people have been exposed and they've developed antibodies. And this is exactly what we're seeing now. We're seeing this globally as well. We're within one metropolitan area, for instance. Different areas would, would have different results. So this is not totally unexpected. So is this a result of um, the the old poor, rich, poor divide? Like poorer people are forced uh, to mix. They're forced to be in enclosed and dangerous spaces on public transport, in their housing, where they live. So they are obviously going to be exposed more. And out of that comes this uh, issue of um, immunity. Um, Shafiq, yes. That is one way to look at it. Um, if you think of some of our earlier conversations, we've always, I've always said that if we speak about lockdowns in areas and we speak about regional lockdowns, um, or what, what the government and international research is called circuit breakers, mm. small um, concentrated lockdowns, I've always said these do not work. Because in a country, for instance, like South Africa, if you move into to our lower socioeconomic areas, People cannot um, self-isolate. They cannot, um, you know, have physical distancing. People cannot afford masks. So very much so. The positive side of this is that it shows us that the vast majority of people are asymptomatic or very mild symptoms. So they were never tested. And and I've always said that we forget about that cohort of people in the population. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it is significant, isn't it? Now, how does this play into... What we are seeing at the moment, there's been, I mean, Dr. Karim said yesterday, there's been a 50% shrinkage of cases, and it seems to be a worldwide phenomenon. And in South Africa, we seem to be bottoming out of something. What it is, I don't know. Whether we are rising for a third wave, I'm not a scientist, I just simply don't know. But there seems to be something happening here. If you look at what happened between the first and second wave, I think we're seeing the same type of, of occurrence. Um, I do think we we still um, could see a third wave. I would not be surprised if we see the third wave over Easter weekend. And and I think these waves, if you look at wave one and two, especially wave two, was very much linked to 
closure of schools, closure, closure of universities, people moving between provinces. For instance, people moving from Western Cape home to the Eastern Cape. Mm. And if you look at the numbers, the numbers really increased along those routes as people were moving. And then when they came back, there was a movement back. So I think as soon as we're going to have large group of people again, movement between provinces, I wouldn't be surprised to see an increase in positive numbers again. But I do not expect to see a drastic increase in the percentage of deaths. And, and I think that would be somehow linked to the, the immunity we're seeing at the moment and, and the better um, treatment options that we have available. Um, I've heard some doctors saying that the South African version, I hate that term, Yeah. <laughs> um, I really do, because every virus mutates, I wouldn't have to tell you that, hmm. but that those who've had it, um, do apparently have some kind of inbuilt immunity or resistance. And so many people got affected by the second wave. Surely that's going to play the numbers down. And, and you know, Shafiq, I'm so excited that you mentioned this because I know that I'm not very popular when I say that um, <laughs> those who have been infected, I do not see the, the supporting data here to say that they should be vaccinated. Um, the, the current data shows that somebody that has been infected still has antibodies up to eight months later. Yes. And we've only been studying them for eight months, so it might be longer. Um, T and B cells, so the white blood cells that also plays a role in immunity, could probably last longer. That's the long-term immunity. And if we look at the other six coronaviruses, human ones that we know of, we see that with them as well. Uh, antibody immunity lasting about a year to three, and then long-term T and B cell immunity. And something we forget as researchers, we are currently only looking at antibodies to the spike protein. Mm. Everybody speaks about the spike protein. The, the vaccines generate antibodies to the spike protein. There are other viral proteins that are more immunogenic, which means they generate more antibodies. Those play a role in immunity as well. How long do those last? So I think if we look at the number that's been infected, and, and I'll be frank, I don't think it's 60%. I think in certain areas you could see up to 60%. I think in the end we'll probably see about 20 to 30% of the South African population naturally having antibodies to this. Um, so we forget about all of those factors that could really impact on immunity and how long immunity lasts. The, the other question, it does seem as if the virus... I don't know what the correct term is, punching itself out. Um, I mean, what I did the other day, I had a look at all the patterns of um, Spanish flu. I know it's avian flu and it was a different kind of flu, but if one looks at the trends, they seem to be pretty much the same in terms of the second wave uh, being the most uh, deadly. Um, and the Spanish flu, I think, had three waves, if my reading is correct. Yeah. The, the first one was quite bad. The second one was catastrophic. There was a third one. And after that, although the, the virus stayed in the population, it didn't affect people anymore. I had this conversation with a journalist from Canada, actually, this week, Shafiq. Wow. <laughs> so this is, a, this is a, global, a global question. And I'm one of the schools of thought that says a virus or a pathogen, a disease-causing organism, tries to keep the host alive and as healthy as long as possible. So it will find ways to spread easier, but it will not necessarily look for ways to make the host more ill. 
So the virus, and if we look at what's happening with this, with this coronavirus, it's spreading easier now, we're saying. Symptoms have not changed, and it's not deadly, and it's not making people more ill. The symptoms are the same. Mm. I think we're seeing the same for this, uh, for the SARS-CoV-2. So uh, it looks as though this will, could become one of the circulating coronaviruses. Currently, we have four that cause the common cold. Um, maybe this is number five. So we will still have infections every year. We could still see deaths every year, but much, much, much lower. Interesting stuff indeed. Professor Fielding, I would love to carry on chatting about this for much longer. We seem to be uh, striking some notes of resonance, but Professor Fielding, UWC, do enjoy the weekend. Thank you, Shafiq, you too, and thank you to the listeners. Drive time 91.3. Always on the cutting edge.